We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Um, I, I, you know, have you ever had those times in which something has seemed like it has taken so long and yet you get to the end of it and it's like, man, we're already to the end of the book of Luke. You know, I had that on my graduation day in high school. I remember feeling like those four years took so long to, to kind of climax to this point. But then looking back on it on my graduation day, I remember looking back and just thinking these four years went so fast. And it seems like that with this with this book and our journey through it. And so, you know, welcome to you guys who are joining us. If this is your first time, you've got 23 chapters to catch up on, uh, to go back and to listen to. We have covered a lot of material, and God has been faithful to bring us through it all the way into the climactic uh, fulfillment of chapter 24 in this book, which is my favorite of the Gospels. Uh, from this point forward... You know, unless God changes course and, and, you know, shifts things to something else, I'm going to kind of step out of my comfort zone a little bit, put myself really out there on some things. Uh, I've already got kind of a list made of, but I think the, the direction we're going to go, like I said, unless God changes that, is that we're going to go through the Word and discuss, um, biblically speaking, using the Word of God as our foundation, you know, historical evidence as well as Scripture, those two things primarily are going to dictate to us, um, they're going to unveil and reveal some of the common misconceptions and even heresies that are being taught in much of the church today. Um, you know, I'm not going to give necessarily anything away on that. I'm just going to go topic by topic, which is not really my favorite way of doing things because, um, you know, it, I like structure. I like, you know... Um, I just like to expositorily go through things. I feel like it's it's just more of my style. But this is going to be out of my comfort zone, and there's going to be some topics that we're going to talk about that are really going to put me out there, and I'm okay with that. And so um, I think that's going to be the direction we're going to go, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but we're not there yet. We still have one more chapter in Luke 24 to go through. And so we're going to get right into this. If you've got your Bibles, open them up with me. And, uh, and, and read along with me, um, hopefully from a trustworthy translation, uh, such as the ESV, the King James, the NASB, the HCSB. You know, there's several of them that are out there that I think are trustworthy, that try to stay literal and not try to be too interpretative of the text, such as the NLT or the Passion or the Message, which I wouldn't even say is a translation. That's just one man's interpretation posed as a Bible today by, for many people. Um, those are not trustworthy, okay? So, if you have your Bible, open up with me, and let's read along in this. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. 
And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, I'm going to stop there because I want to kind of back up and kind of give a little bit of a timeline. I, I, there's a lot of discrepancy for a lot of people as to what day this actually was and how the three days corresponded with the Passover, the Sabbath. And, and, and there's, you know, some people have some really good arguments and various stuff. I'm not going to get into all that stuff. What I do know is it says on the first day of the week, which would, from my estimation, my understanding of how the Sabbath was, the Sabbath was instituted to be from a Friday at sundown to a Saturday at sundown. That was considered the Sabbath. It wasn't until around 3 26 or so AD that Constantine came in and uh, when he forged the Roman Catholic Church and began blending Christianity with paganistic ritualistic type things that he changed the Sabbath from a Saturday as the Jews had already always had abided in to a Sunday. All right. And that's why moving forward for the last 1700 years or so, we have kind of adopted the Sunday as the Sabbath. Okay. That wasn't how it was for the Jews, and that's not how it was at this time. All right, so Sunday would have been, from my understanding, the first day of the week, okay? So this would have been on a Sunday morning at early dawn. They went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared previously because, uh, well, you can go read the previous chapter on that, you know, the previous section. It says they found the stone rolled away. Now, here's the cool thing. I don't know how many people actually knew that that was a prophecy fulfilled to have the stone rolled away. Because when you understand that the stone being rolled away of Christ conquering the darkness of that tomb, that he conquered death, right? That's what the stone symbolizes, that that which was in darkness has now had a great light, all right? This is what Jesus told Paul he was going to preach to the Gentiles, that the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. What happens when a stone is rolled away? A light protrudes into the darkness, and in this case, light comes out of the darkness. And when you understand the symbolic nature of we were dead in our trespasses and sins... Then you go back to Joshua chapter 5 when it says that the people that they, um, uh, they came from a place called Gilgal, or that's what the place was called because it means a rolling. And it literally says in Joshua 5, I don't, I don't know the exact verse, but I know it's in that chapter, where it says that today the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away from you. It was when they came into, they crossed the Jordan, they came into this promised land, they came into the land that was purchased by blood. Um, is what the land, it actually means, Damin is the word, it means the boundary of blood. This land was God's promise to the Jews, and they, the day that they came into that, it says that today the reproach of Egypt, which represents flesh and sin and bondage to it, that you are dead in your trespasses, you are slaves to the things of this world, you are slaves to, to the God of this world. The day you come into Christ is the day that the reproach of Egypt or of your flesh and sin is rolled away. And so this is a prophecy fulfilled that the stone was rolled away. And going on, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. I would love to. Um, however, I've got quite a few verses to get into as we kind of culminate this. I'll let you go and search some more on that one. It says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, if you go back into John 20, you're going to find that these were two angels. 
Okay? And this is a fascinating thing for me because a lot of people don't realize how many prophecies have been fulfilled even just in this small segment of what we're talking about. In, in, um, in, in Judaism or in the law, it was commanded by God that they would have something called a mercy seat that sat on the Ark of the Covenant. Now inside this Ark of the Covenant, you had the, the Ten Commandments, the Tablets of Stone. You had the manna. Right, that they ate in the wilderness. They had a jar of manna that was in there, and you had the um, the uh, staff that Aaron took. That it was the the almond blossoms came from that, so life from death, right, of the priesthood. You had these three articles inside the Ark of the Covenant, and on top, it, they had two cherubims, one on one side and one on the other. Okay, and they were facing each other, and this made the mercy seat. Okay, all of it is representative of Christ. The Ten Commandments, the manna, the bread that fell from heaven, the priesthood that came, that sprung death, or sprung life from death, that blossomed, right? All of that represents Christ. And in here, we actually see a picture of it and a prophecy fulfilled. In John 20, verse 12, here's what he says. I'll just start in 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So here you see this resting place where the body of Christ was. And now... Um, as we you know, have talked about prior to at the cross, the veil was torn, you know, ripped in two, and it symbolizes that there's an, now an access into the presence of God through the body of Jesus Christ because he's conquering death, as we're seeing right here. But there's this picture of these two angels, right, sitting at the feet and sitting at the head. You know where those cherubims were placed, right? Where they were commanded in the law to place those cherubims because God had the foresight to know what was going to happen with his son. There was an angel at the foot and there was an angel at the head. And here we see the same thing. An angel at the foot and an angel at the head. And it's representative of now Christ has become the place of mercy. He has become the source of the word being revealed to us. He's become the source of the priesthood. He's become the source of the manna that we feast on. The food that as he talks about in John 4.32. I have food to eat that you don't know about. But when we come into Christ. All those things we find him as the source. To truth. To the way of life. To the father. And all these things were foreshadows and pictures of what Christ was going to fulfill and reveal to us. He goes on and he says this phrase, why do you see the living among the dead? Let me ask you. I think most people um, would look at this only in terms of the body of Christ. But I want to pose a question to you in terms of something that's practical for life today. Let me ask you this. Why, why do you seek life from things that can't give it. And here's what I mean by that. You know, in First Peter, I think it is, where he talks about as, a, as a, a reference from the Old Testament, where he says, the one who wants to see life, the one who wants to see long days, the one who wants to see um, good things in this life, it says, let them seek peace and pursue it. Let them turn from evil. Essentially, obey and do what you need to be doing, and God will grant you a fullness of life. 
But yet, we try to find life in our jobs. We try to find life in our kids. We try to find life in possessions. We're trying to find life, or you could say even just value from our reputation, from our our identity and whatever it might be. All these things. We try to find life from the things that can't truly give life. All the while, Jesus is right here, the author of life, the giver of life, and yet we don't seek him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We fall victim to the exact same thing. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do we chase after the things that cannot give us life when the one who promises life, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through him, he's right there and he says, I will give you life and life abundantly. And yet we busy ourselves with the things that can't sustain life. I want you to to think on that. Because that's a trap that, that, that Satan wants to give to us. In 1 John 2, 15-17, he says, Do not love the world or the things, in, you know, the things in the world. For the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride and possessions, it is not from God, but it is from the God of this world. All those things that this world wants to offer you to try to make you feel satisfied and full, it is a deception. And it will never give you the fullness of life that God offers through Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 6. He says, he's not here. You're not going to find him in this tomb anymore. You're not going to find him in the darkness any longer. But is risen. And here's where I want you to see something. where punctuation can kind of give you an idea of what's being stated. Oftentimes you could read this next verse and you could say, well, that's a question. I want, uh, you know, remember when he did these things, right? I mean, remember when he taught you these things? Do you remember that? Notice the punctuation at the end of this. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. It's a period. It's not a question mark. They're stating and saying, look, I don't want you to remember what he says like as if you, it was a question. Hey, do you remember when these things, when he was talking about these things? No, it's a command. He says, I'm commanding you. I want you to remember, as he talked about in, in Luke chapter 18, 31 through 34. Remember when he told you these things. Bring it to mind. Go back into that memory bank of all the teachings that Jesus gave to you. And I want you to bring it and recollect it and bring it to the forefront of your mind. Remember it. And he goes on, he says, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and the Mary, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You see, as these women had experienced this, and they came back, and they were telling the other 11 disciples that, you know, obviously Judas has already left, Matthias has not been brought in after they had cast lots for him in Acts chapter 1. So the 11 are there, uh, and they didn't believe it, right? Except for one. The very next verse, it says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You see, the other ten, they didn't believe what the women were saying. It seems as an idle tale to them. Even though they remembered what Jesus said on the third day I was going to rise again, I had to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, they didn't believe in how often we're in the same boat as them. 
How often Jesus gives us his promises in his word. And yet we're in the same boat. I know I have. I've been there many times. In that place where God literally says, hey, you know, you're going to have to suffer. You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through things that you will not understand what I'm doing in the midst of it. But I will strengthen you and confirm you. I will be the one who after you have suffered a little while, as 1 Peter 5, 8-11 talks about, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and establish you to him be the glory and praise forever. Amen. I will come to you. I will show you what's going on. And yet in the midst of the trial, here I am with my hands up pleading to God saying, God, I don't get it. What are you doing? And I struggle through it. How often are we in the same boat where we hear the testimony of what God has done through Christ and what God will do through Christ and yet we see it as an idle tale and distant from where we are? I just know I've been in the same boat. But may we be more like Peter, who puts action to his faith. Because when we put action to our faith and we continue in that, we endure in that. It will result in seeing what God wanted us to see. You see, Peter got to see it. And we know in John, John says that after Peter got up, John himself was also running after Peter. And Peter stops at the tomb, and then John so conveniently puts in there and been like, yeah, you know what, but I went, I went in. Or maybe, actually now I'm confused, uh, confusing myself, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe John beat him to the tomb, but Peter went in. Either way, the point is, is are you going to be the person who is going to put action to your faith and endure through that, keeping your eyes fixed on Christ? Knowing that he will bring forth what he has promised to bring forth. In one way, shape, or form. And I think that's why 1 Peter 1.13 is so important when he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for battle, for action. Okay? God didn't create us to be stagnant people in our faith. He created us to be people who walk out our faith. Who live according to faith. Who walk in the footsteps of faith, as Romans 4 would say He's called us to be people who prepare our mind for action, and for battle. He says, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God will reveal his plan and his will. Our job is to endure through it with our eyes fixed on him. Not to think that the impossibilities of the gospel are some idle tale so distant from us that they can't be achieved. So how do you respond to the possibility, to the impossibilities of Scripture or of even life? The ones where God promises that He'll do something in you and you're just like, no, that's impossible. That can't happen. I can't live like Jesus. I mean, you know, Jesus was Jesus. I can't live. Well, I'm sorry. That attitude and that mentality, that's wrong. Jesus was made like us in every respect, Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, 17, I believe is where it is. Jesus... Um, laid aside equality with God because it wasn't something that mankind could grasp. So he stripped himself of that equality with God and made himself just like us. So if Jesus did it, so can we. Because the same spirit that dwelt in him dwells in us if you are in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God, his divine nature has granted to us all things that pertain to a life of godliness. If he could do it, so can you and I. And once we grapple that and we begin to actually 
you know, have faith resonate with that truth. That's when the impossible becomes possible. But until then, that truth will be very distant to you and seem like an idle tale. And it'll still be the whole, all things will be impossible for those who don't believe. Because the scripture actually says, all things are possible for him who believes. If you don't believe in the impossibilities, you'll never achieve it. So how do you respond to the impossibilities of scripture or in life of what God has promised to us through Christ? Going on, he says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That comes into play a little bit later. Seven miles. And I don't know how long it would take for a person to walk seven miles on rugged terrain. I'm sure that there weren't a whole lot of like paved roads, you know, for that. There probably was clearings, there probably was pathways, there might have even been some dirt roads, some gravel roads that they would have gone on in sandals. But I highly doubt that they had, you know, um, a very easy trip for seven miles. I take walks with my wife probably three or four days a week, and we walk about two miles each time, sometimes a little bit more, but um, about those two miles, it takes us roughly about 30 minutes, maybe, maybe 40 at most, just depending on kind of like what's going on, how much we're talking, all that stuff. So 30 or 40 minutes for two miles. So you would figure that for seven miles of two men who are walking and talking, as we're going to find out in a little bit, figure maybe what, 15 miles or 15 minutes per mile, maybe 20 minutes per mile. We can just go with a flat 20 minutes per mile. All right. So you're looking at what is that, about two hours, a little over two hours, maybe closer to three of what it's going to take for them to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, seven miles. So kind of keep that in mind that they're walking these seven miles and it's not yet evening, okay, as we're going to find out in a little bit. This is later on in the day. They're walking. And here's what it says. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened concerning Jesus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. Remember, Jesus has already resurrected. He's already conquered death. The stone has been rolled away. The reproach of Egypt is now gone. Jesus is now appearing to his disciples and to people who had followed him or were his disciples during his ministry. And here's two men that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, why would Jesus do that? And I think it goes into Proverbs 25 too. It's the glory of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to search them out. God, I once heard somebody say one time that God will not hide things from us. God doesn't want to hide anything from us. I would beg to differ because scripture differs with that. It is the glory of God to conceal things. All the secrets and the, and the wisdom and understanding are hidden in Christ, Colossians 2, 3. It's literally what it says. God will hide things so that those who are genuine and who actually want to find it will search it out in order to find it. God will hide truths from us because it's only those who seek him with all of their heart that find those truths. So God does those things in an effort to prove us, to refine us, and to see if we're genuine. So don't think that God's just laid everything on a silver table for you and just says, hey, here's everything for you. You don't have to work for anything. You don't have to do anything. It's just all accessible right here for you. Just come and eat and do whatever. No, that's not how it works. God has laid everything out. But the pathway to get there is going to cost you something. 
he goes on, he says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You could go again into Colossians 2.3 and find um, that concept that all the, the riches of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, they're all hidden in Christ Jesus. So when you come into him, you now have the way to get there, but you're going to have to do something to get it. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk as if he didn't know? And they stood still looking sad. I think that's just uh, um, an interesting statement that Luke makes right there of, of how he found these things out in his interviewing with the disciples and his interviewing and his missions with Paul that he took is that apparently this was enough for them to put it in here to say that they stood still. As they were walking and Jesus comes up and as soon as Jesus says, like, what are you guys talking about? They just stop and they just look at him and I can just imagine there's tears in their eyes. As they're about to ask him these questions and recount to him everything that's took, taken place the last three days in Jerusalem. This is then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Remember, they were sad. So I can imagine these things are being stated with tears. And he says, he said to them, what things? As if Jesus didn't know. And how often does he do that in our lives? Right? Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. He, know, he knows what we're thinking. He knows our heart. He knows our circumstances. He knows our trial. And yet oftentimes it's almost as if he's like asking us questions of like, what's wrong? <laughs> what's going on? Because he wants to challenge us and to see how we perceive things in our own perception and heart. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. Notice the past tense. Mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Notice they didn't say that he was the son of God. They said he was a prophet. That he was a prophet, not is a prophet. You can see their mindset. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to find out where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where's your perspective? How are you perceiving things? And he does that by asking a question. And they answered him. Probably was something that he probably already knew of how they were going to answer. They were looking at the circumstance and they had lost hope. They didn't understand what was going on. I mean, it says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's a very prominent belief for many of the ones who followed Jesus as they thought that he was going to redeem Israel. But that was because they were expecting him to do something that he never intended to do. Not in the way they thought at least. They thought that he was going to come, that the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. The oppression, just like Moses did when they were in Egypt. Now here they are for, for several hundred years, they're in tyranny under the hand of Rome. And they thought that the Christ was going to be like Moses and was going to physically redeem them from the tyranny of the empire that was over them. But what they didn't understand was Jesus didn't come to, to redeem them physically. He came to redeem them spiritually. Moses was just a foreshadow of what God would do physically, but the physical precedes the spiritual, but the physical cannot save, only the second born can. Here's what I mean by that. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. That which is flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why he tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. 
He's like, am I to crawl up in my mother's womb? Jesus is like, man, you, you don't get it. You're still thinking naturally. You're still thinking physically. You're still thinking of the firstborn of the flesh. Man, you need to be born of the Spirit. Because it is only through the Spirit that you understand the things of God. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says it where he says, The natural person does not accept the things of God. In fact, he rejects them because they're foolishness to him. Because the things of God are spiritually discerned. And God has given us his spirit in order to discern the things that are freely given to us by the spirit. So this concept is they thought he was coming to redeem Israel. They were still thinking naturally and physically of the firstborn of the flesh. They thought it was still about Israel. They thought it was still about the Jews. And yet God had bigger plans. God didn't send Jesus to redeem the Jews and to redeem the nation of Israel from the oppression of Rome. God sent Jesus to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. From the tyranny of the devil. That's why he sent Jesus. So that we could then abide in a kingdom that is not of this earth. That's why I get so up in arms when people talk about how Israel is God's territory and how the Jews are God's people. Let me just tell you, they are not. And Israel is not. Siding with Israel is not going to get you anywhere. Yes, I realize what it says in the Old Testament. Siding with Israel will get you nowhere in God's favor. But if you side with the true people of God, it will. His true beloved, which is the church, those who are in Christ. Because we are his heavenly Jerusalem now. We are his, um, his abode in which his spirit and glory dwell. And don't miss that truth. Because on that last day, there will be many Jews who see Gentiles reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they won't be getting in. Go read Luke 13 and you'll see that truth. The Jews are not his people and Israel is not his territory. They might still have a part to play in the plan that he's got. In the return of Christ. And Israel might still have a part to play in the plan that God has. And they are still having access to God, but only through Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 11 teaches. But as far as being his nation and his people, I don't see validation in scripture for that one bit when you understand things through the spirit and not through the flesh. It goes on, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Why would they bring that up? Why would they be like, yes, all that stuff, and even besides that, or on top of that, it's now the third day. What does that mean? Well, I'm not going to get too in-depth into it because I'm already 30 minutes into this and I'm about halfway through the chapter. But the Jews, or at least some of the Jews, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I do know that this was a, a belief back then. And you can find it even in the concept of the man who was born blind. Okay, What was it that the disciples asked Jesus? Who was it that sinned? This man that he was born blind or his parents? How can a man have sinned and as a result of that sin be born blind? You also see the same thing with Lazarus. Well, why did Jesus wait an extra two days before he went there? So that it was after the third day. That once that third day was complete, Jesus then comes in on that fourth day and says, Rise, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. Why did he do that? It's because the Jews had a belief system in the transmigration of soul. 
And what that transmigration of soul believed was that for three days the spirit of that person hovered over the body, even after they have been dead. The spirit hovered over the body for those three days. But after the third day, the spirit goes. And it then is impossible to resurrect. It's impossible for them to be brought back to life. That was a part of their belief system. That's why Jesus waited until after that time to prove to the Pharisees of what was impossible is now possible through him. And in the same way, he waited for those three days, not only because it was prophesied, but also to prove to the people that God can do the impossible. Now there's other things that go into that, the Kabbalah and all the various things that kind of, you know, mysticism went various ways and various degrees and various cultures and various ways, Buddhism, Hinduism, all that stuff. But tracing it back to the Jews of what would have been kind of thought about at this time, that's what goes into that statement. That it's, now it's the third day and our hope of him resurrecting, our hope of him coming back to life is gone. Little did they know who was standing before them. It says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Remember, we talked about the mercy seat. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Talking about Peter and John. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now imagine, here's this stranger that's been listening to them this entire time, asking questions like, what are you guys talking about? What things are you talking about? Now all of a sudden he responds to them and says, you foolish ones. Slow of heart, as if he has all the answers, because he does. And I think um, <laughs> how often we are the same exact way in all of this. God gives us his promises. God tells us what he's going to do. And ultimately that he is going to come through. That he cannot lie. He will come through. He will reveal himself. He will make his will known. He will do what he has promised to do in his word. And yet in the midst of it. We're slow of heart to believe. And we're foolish. Because we're trusting more in ourselves than we are in God. And again. Man. Especially these last two or three years. There was a time in my life for probably a stretch of about five to ten years that you couldn't shake me. You couldn't rattle me. Did I have moments of discouragement and disappointment? Yes. But I knew in whom I believed and I was confident and I believed that his promises were true. And that even in the circumstances of life, God was going to make himself known and he was going to do what he had promised in my life. And there was nothing you could do to shake me and rattle me in that. And then there came the moment when I got shaken and I got rattled. And it's been the process of trying to pick myself back up ever since. And praise God, he's been patient. Praise God, he's been merciful. He's been forgiving and he's extended grace to me. And there's been these ups and downs throughout the last two or three years of where God has begun to kind of help me to get back up. And then oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll stand up and then all of a sudden I'm back down in the dirt again. And so has been the last couple years of there's times where I feel like I'm starting to get back and then all of a sudden it's back down in the dirt again. And there's this process that's going on. So I'm in no way saying that to, to do this, you know, where we're struggling to believe, we're slow of heart to believe. I'm in no way saying that I've got that, that methodology figured out. But here's what I do know. 
God is faithful. He cannot lie. And the things that he has promised, he will surely do his part. When we begin to walk in ours. That's what a partnership is. That's what a covenant is. It's a contract between two parties. God has said, and diatheke is the Greek word for it, testament, covenant, will, promise. It's the same word used for all of it. And it means contract. God has said, I will uphold my end, and I will be faithful to do so. But you must uphold your end. And I'll give you everything you need to do so. It's a win-win for us. But he says, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Don't you realize they were all speaking about me? All this stuff. In the midst of all of Israel's chaos and all the suffering and affliction that the prophets went through and all the stuff that the people went through, in the midst of it all, they had forgotten that the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, was going to come and redeem them. And how often we're in the same boat. In the midst of it, it's so hard to see the forest through the trees. It goes on, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to take, take notice of that. They had a seven-mile journey. I don't know what, what point of it that Jesus came and was walking with them, but I would imagine it was close to the beginning. Jesus went through all the scriptures. All. I mean, like, think about that. All 39 books that we have today, the Old Testament of the prophets and the Psalms and the law, everything that was written about him with these two men that were concerning himself, he went through all of it with them. Now you can understand why these guys were like, whoa, this dude knows his stuff. Our hearts were literally burning inside as he opened up the scriptures to us, as we're about to see. This is a seven mile journey. And probably for a good portion of that, it was spent listening to this man divulge the scriptures and reveal it all about the Son of Man, the Son of God that was going to have to suffer to bring about salvation and redemption. The mystery, if you will, that Ephesians 3 talks about. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, into Emmaus. He acted as if he were going farther, which is a Greek word, prospoemeo, uh, sorry, prospoemei is the Greek word. It means to pretend or to make it seem as though. So, I don't think Jesus had the intent of going farther. Jesus was just basically pretending like he was. Because he wanted to see what they would do. So it says, he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So now we're getting to the point to where the day is gone. The night has come. It's toward evening. So it's probably dusk. It's probably, you know, getting a little bit dark outside as they're coming to Emmaus. Keep that in mind. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, I I love this part. Because in this part it talks about how the, the blessing of God is revealed to mankind through the breaking of bread. 
Now, when you understand that Jesus, who is the manna that came down from heaven, was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, that he's symbolic, as I've talked about before in, in Luke, where he was symbolic of the, the show bread, which is the bread that was for the priesthood to be offered fresh every single day on the table of presence, this, this um, table of acacia wood, right, which acacia means sticks of wood. All right, it's a fitting example, but let me just break that down for you spiritually and symbolically. Here is this bread that is from heaven that is offered consistently and constantly, is always fresh, essentially to be placed on this wooden vessel or these sticks of wood for the people or the priesthood to partake of always. So here we have Jesus. Revealed in the breaking of the bread. The plan that God had for the Christ to be crucified on sticks of wood. To be offered as a means of sustenance for the world. Of all who would come into Christ. That they would have this showbread available to them. And I love even, um, there's two different translations for it. One is the bread of the presence, and one is the bread of the face, that show bread. When it's broken down in the Hebrew, you have the bread of the presence or the bread of the face. And going into 2 Corinthians 4, you see that it says that the glory of God was revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that bread that came down from heaven and put himself on sticks of wood to be a place of sustenance Food to eat for all those who would abide in Christ. And here we see this concept of the scriptures were opened up to them. And they recognized Jesus in the moment that they recognized the breaking of the bread. And I think that's why Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice it wasn't necessarily just Jesus' teaching, and it wasn't just one apostle as if Peter was the only one that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. It says, and their eyes were opened, which is the, the Greek word dianoigo. It means of the firstborn or of the mind to see. So it's like a child that's been in darkness and that, that, I say child, an infant, a baby, a newborn baby that was sitting in the womb that was in darkness, it couldn't see, then all of a sudden it comes out that birth canal and it comes out and it sees the light for the first time. That's what this word signifies. Their eyes were open and they recognized him as if it was for the first time because they had been given new eyes to see. And he vanished from their sight. Well, isn't that fitting? <laughs> they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? He says, Our hearts were burning as Jesus taught us. Can you just imagine that? I mean, I've had some guys in my life that have taught me things. And I love just sitting there, and as they give revelation um, through some of these things, I'm just like, Whoa! But can you imagine Jesus being the one who's teaching? No wonder their hearts burned. No wonder they were open to so much that they didn't understand or see before. But check this out in 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. (laughs) 
It's already toward evening when they get there and they sit down and they start having a meal and they're talking to Jesus. So I'm sure that it's dark at this point. You're probably looking at, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock, depending on what time frame is going on, what, you know, what season it is or whatever. That same hour they go and they make their two or three hour journey back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night. There's no lighted roads for them. This is in the middle of darkness, but they were so excited and eager to return to go say, we've seen Jesus. They wanted to go tell people that they had seen Jesus as if it was the first time that they had seen him for truly who he was. No longer a prophet, but now the son of God. When you have that kind of an encounter with Jesus, you don't, you don't not want to share with people around you. You don't want to hold back and be like, yeah, I just, I don't know if I really want to share about what Jesus has done in my life. And I, I don't really want to, want to share what, no, you want to share. And if you don't, it's probably because you've lost sight. And you need the joy of your salvation to return to you. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Notice, it seems like these two guys were with them in this moment when this was taking place. They had just seen Jesus and now Jesus appears to them and is like, Whoa, hold up, it's a spirit. <laughs> now could it? Be referencing simply just the eleven? Maybe. I don't know. But it does seem to include the two who were on the road to Emmaus with Jesus and who were right there. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself appeared to them. And they were scared. They thought they saw a spirit. Same thing as it was out on the boat. Jesus appeared to them. They thought it was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Notice, no question mark. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. A spirit needs a vessel, right? Whether that's a demon or whatever, it needs a vessel. And when he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, and while they still disbelieved for joy, which I think is an interesting phrase. Have you ever had a, a joy and a hope that comes and yet you're still not quite sold that God's going to do something, but you're expectant of him doing something? Like maybe you have financial woes or financial struggles and something's going on and you read something in the word and you're just like, you know, God will supply every one of your needs, right? Or to, you know, to him who supplies the seed for sowing, as 2 Corinthians 9 talks about, or, or God will not, you know... Um, well, what does he say in Hebrews 13, 5? He says, um, uh, uh, well, I'm going to have to turn to it now. He says, uh, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's not a salvific verse. That's one that's referencing, make sure that you're content with what you have and trust that God, that if you're moving faithful in what he's asked you to do, if you're obedient to what he's asked you to do, that God will not leave you high and dry. You might read a verse like that and all of a sudden God gives you that security and that revelation of saying, I will provide for you. 
You might read Matthew 6 and it says that I will take care of your food, drink, and clothing. I will take care. You seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I will add all these things to you. You might be in the middle of of desperation or financial woes and you read those things and you realize that he is the provider, Jehovah Rapha. That he is um, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And you have hope. A resurgence of hope that floods and yet you still have that doubt of I don't see how he's going to do it. But I at least have hope that he's going to. I feel like that's how they were. They disbelieved for joy and were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Which is the Greek word plaru. It means to make full, to render full, to make Complete, to accomplish, satisfy, and complete. He says, everything that's in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms that was written about me, and I can tell you there is a lot that is in there. If you're looking for it, and you're looking for Jesus, as you go through the law, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you go through the prophets, and you go through Psalms, you're going to find Jesus all over the place. And he says, and it's all found as fulfillment And then here's one of the most beautiful things. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Can you understand that? That these guys have gone through the scriptures their entire life. They've been to the temple. They've heard the readings in the synagogues. They've gone through. They know these things. They've heard them from childhood. Constantly acquainted with the scriptures. And yet in this moment for the first time. God's opened up their eyes through Jesus Christ. To be able to see the scriptures for what they were really intended for. And that is to point to and reveal Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the first day they went back into the synagogue. And maybe they were reading through Joshua. Or maybe they were reading through Deuteronomy. Or maybe they were reading, reading through Leviticus. And the Levitical law. The priesthood. And all of a sudden. Because now their eyes have been spiritually awakened. To be able to see things that were hidden. Now all of a sudden they're like, dude, 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 hey, look at that. It says that uh, uh, a priest must be washed by a Levite in order to serve as, the, as a priest. Before he can put on holy garments, he has to be washed by a Levite. Jesus was of the line of Judah. He couldn't serve as a priest unless he fulfilled the law by being washed by a Levite, John the Baptist. And only then could he then put on the holy garments of the Spirit to be able to then be one who washed other people. Peter, do you see that? Yeah, John, I see that. They never saw things like that before. Now they do. And he opened their mind to now be able to understand those things. Because only through the Spirit can we see truth for what it was intended for. This is why that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they only have value now in as much as they point to and reveal Jesus Christ. Who, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the truth. It's not about the law of Moses. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, they do have value. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But they only have value for a Christian only in as much as they point to and reveal Jesus. 
If you're reading the law simply because it was the law of Moses that God gave to the Israelites and you're keeping that law simply because of that, let me just tell you, you're an idolatry. Because you're placing the law of Moses, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, of equal to or higher value than the law of Christ. The ministry of the Spirit rather than the ministry carved in letters on stone or as referenced as the ministry of death. Go read 2 Corinthians 3. And he even talks about, it says, even to this day when they read the law of Moses, there's a veil that remains over their hearts and their eyes. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And you see the law for what it was intended for. Not for a bunch of rules to be kept when we come into Christ. For a bunch of things that pointed us to Him. The guardian or the schoolmaster, as Galatians 3 says, that kept us until faith came. But once faith came, we're no longer under that schoolmaster or that guardian. Go read Ephesians 2, Galatians 3. You can go read Romans chapter 10. 1 through 3, where it says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to him who believes. It is no longer about the law. It only has value inasmuch as it points us to Jesus. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. He says this is going to be the place that it's going to start from, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. But let me just clarify something real quick and point it out. It is repentance and forgiveness. If you're part of the, the mass populace from the pulpit that likes to just preach uh, forgiveness... You're preaching an incomplete message. If you're just up there saying God loves you and that he sent Jesus to be the atonement for your sins, to be able to bring forgiveness for you, and if you would just ask him into your heart, you could be saved for all of eternity. And if you think that that's absurd that people are out there saying that, I guarantee you there are people out there saying it because I've heard it. If you are only preaching forgiveness... And you're preaching a message that's incomplete and will not accomplish what that message needs to accomplish. And on the flip, if you're preaching just the need to repent without the benefit or the hope of forgiveness, then that message is going to produce a hopeless message for somebody. Because they're always going to be seeking to repent and they're never going to think that they add up, that they own up to anything good enough to ever be in God's favor. It is repentance and forgiveness. Not one or the other, but both. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, I've talked about this some before when I went through Ephesians chapter 1. I've talked about it previously even through Luke. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But here's what I will say. I think these are two distinct things. If you read in John 20, 22, it's a corresponding time frame that's going on right here. It's when Jesus appears to the disciples, right? It's the first time he appears to them. And he's appearing to them all together. And how the sequence of events all play out, I don't fully know exactly how it all transpired. But here's what I do know. Is that in John 20, 22, it says that Jesus breathed on them and he says, receive the promised Holy Spirit. He breathed on them just as God breathed life into Adam and he became a living being. Jesus, in John 20, 22, 
breathes the spirit upon the people. And I believe that they became living beings in that moment. Because now Jesus, having been glorified, has now been able to send the spirit. And as Ephesians 1 says, when you believe in him and receive the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with or marked by the Holy Spirit. So when a person comes to Christ, there is the reception of the Holy Spirit immediately. It's, a, it's an all-encompassing transaction in which you receive the Spirit, the marking of God. You are now His. You belong to Him. That's what Romans 8 9 says, that when um, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. When you believe in Him in truth and submit your life to Him as Lord, there is an all-encompassing transaction in heaven that takes place in which then Jesus breathes on you the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit and you are His. You are marked as His child. However, though John 20.22 has already taken place and has taken place in this sequence of events that we're talking about here, He tells them to do something. He says, but I want you to wait in Jerusalem for 40 more days until Pentecost. And then you will receive power. You see, there's two separate transactions in heaven. One is the identification amongst all the heavenlies that you belong to Jesus Christ. I should say that you belong to God through Jesus Christ. You are marked by the Holy Spirit. But then there's a separate transaction in which there's an empowerment of that Holy Spirit. Now here's what's difficult. There is no A plus B equals C. No algebraic equation that is always step one, step two, step three in this order all the time for the people of God. And here's what I mean by that. Some people would say that you have faith and then you you get saved but you don't actually have the spirit yet because you don't get the spirit until you've been water baptized. And then once you get water baptized, then you get the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be evidenced through the speaking of tongues. Some would say you just get water baptized, but they don't believe the tongues exist anymore. So therefore, you don't get tongues because they don't exist anymore. You just got water baptized. Then you were able to receive the Holy Spirit. Some would say that you get the Holy Spirit upon salvation when you pledge your faith in Him. And then you get water baptized as, a, as a, uh, an identification of what's already taken place. Some would say you don't have to get water baptized. It's not essential. You just need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you've got ones like Cornelius, who they believed, they spoke in tongues, then they got water baptized. There's no formula to each and every account going the exact same way. Here's what we know for sure that Scripture teaches us. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you submit to Him as Lord of your life, you are saved. And you receive the Spirit as a marking, as an identifying mark to all the heavenlies, demons and angels alike, that you belong to God through Christ Jesus, that you are His. And as we continue being obedient to what His will is and doing what He says, He continues to then empower us with greater measures of the Holy Spirit within us. How that translates might be different for everybody else. 
Where water baptism fits into that, I think Cornelius is a wrench in the matter for those who think you have to be water baptized to be saved. And yes, I'm well aware of what 1 Peter 3 says, but I'm going to encourage you to look into that passage, the context of that passage, and to keep it with a spiritual lens, not just a physical. Because I could, I could really go through that passage and throw some holes in the ideology that water baptism saves us. I can tell you the baptism of the Spirit is what saves us. John the baptized, baptized with water. Jesus... He washes with the Holy Spirit. That's the one that we need, as Titus 2 and 3 talk about, where he says that the Spirit, the washing of the Spirit, is the regeneration and the renewal upon a Christian's life. It's not water. My estimation, water is simply just an illustration to the people of God to say that I am identifying with Christ and my burial and my resurrection with Him through faith I'm identifying as a physical display to you guys of what I'm committing to and how you should commit to me. It is the outward display of an inward, of an already inward transformation. But I do believe that baptism is a step of obedience that without which there's not going to be a whole lot of progression in the faith. So all these things play a part of this one, but I do want you to understand And I believe that there's greater measures of the Spirit that God wants to apportion to the faithful and to the obedient because He is not going to give His Holy Spirit and greater measures of that Holy Spirit to children who have not proven themselves. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. Prove yourself faithful in the little and God will give you much. And I believe that there is more measures of the Holy Spirit to be had in our lives. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, if you will. But it all depends on are you willing to be faithful with what He has given to you, whether it be one talent, three talents, or five talents. Because I believe that there is more of a clothing of power that God wants to give to us as His children. Not to be confused with the marking that He gives to us when He breathes the Spirit on us. He goes on and He says... Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. I hope that this journey through the book of Luke has been edifying, eye-opening, encouraging, that the Spirit of God has awakened you to understand things that maybe you didn't know before. I would encourage you to share these sermons or these podcasts with people. Talk about them with them. Iron out some of these truths in your own personal study and sharpen alongside of people who have a genuine desire for the Lord. As he talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when he says, um, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable in 20 through 22 there. He says, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. You become a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy for the master. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Surround yourself with people who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Not a heart of mixture, but a pure heart. And sharpen alongside them. Go through the word, letting that always be the absolute plumb line for everything you do in your life. And I pray that this has been a blessing to you. That there's been times where it's been convicting for you. 
but that that conviction, uh, that conviction would lead to a greater level of faith, a greater level of obedience, therefore a greater level of sanctification, as Romans 6 says, that we present ourselves obedient slaves unto righteousness, which leads to sanctification and which leads to eternal life. And may you be blessed in the Lord as you commit yourself to walking as he walked in accordance with the apostles' teaching. And may this serve as a, a springboard for greater things in your life and greater measures of the Holy Spirit in your life as you seek to obey in all humility of submitting yourself under the mighty hand of God so that He can apportion the level of grace for you that He has. Y'all be blessed.